0: listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Rev. Cynthia Bourgeau. Cynthia is the principal teacher and advisor to the Contemplative Society and a founding director of the Aspen Wisdom School. She is an Episcopal priest, a teacher of prayer, and a retreat and conference leader. She passionately promotes the practice of centering prayer and has worked closely with Father Thomas Keating, Bruno Barnhart, Richard Rohr, as well as many other contemplative teachers and masters within Christianity and other spiritual traditions. Cynthia is the author of The Wisdom Way of Knowing, Centering Prayer and Inner Awakening, and with Sounds True, a six-session learning series on Encountering the Wisdom Jesus, as well as an audio program on Singing the Psalms, How to Chant in the Contemplative Christian Tradition. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Cynthia and I spoke about kenosis, or self-emptying, as the center point of Jesus' message, how we can understand Jesus' life as a sacrament, and how love lives beyond death. Here's my conversation with the very intelligent and brilliant Cynthia Bourgeau. In encountering the wisdom Jesus, you talk about Jesus as a recognition event. Can you tell me what you mean by that a recognition event
1: well what i what I mean by that is that the sort of the the biggest mistake that that Christianity makes is to approach him with twenty twenty hindsight that since about the fourth century we've We've approached him by what we believe about him, by creeds that are polished, that are that are, uh, you know, crammed into our heads, and so it gives us it gives us the sense that we know already. We know the story, but when the early people who were attracted by his message first heard him. They didn't have resources. They didn't have recourse to canons and creeds and proper things. And they had to decide for themselves by either recognizing something in them that corresponded with something they could see as true or not. And this is an interesting point because it's exactly the way we recognize teachers today, that it's something in your heart that has to, in the moment, say yay or nay to a an idea, a presence, a person before you.
0: And what was your own recognition experience? How did that happen for you? What did you recognize? With Jesus, yeah, with Jesus.
1: Yeah. Well, it happened for it happened totally by accident when I when I uh, went to what I thought was a Sunday morning concert at an Episcopal church and found myself in a communion line. And I hadn't at this point a clue what communion was. And uh, I was just more afraid of the usher than I was of uh, of damnation by by taking the bread and the wine, perhaps illegitimately. So I went up and, uh, you know, copying the rest of the people in the reception line, uh, received my first uh, completely bootleg communion with no idea what was happening. And, and on the way back to my pew, uh, I was like, oh, I get it. I know this person. Uh and it was very small and subtle, but it was a it was a very clear uh understanding and I, I give it some credibility because I was so totally ill informed or uninformed, I was totally a liturgical virgin at that point. So something from deep within that presence, um, engaged by presence. There's a there's a line in the one of the psalms that says, One deep calls to another And it was that kind of an experience.
0: So, even though it was subtle, I'm curious if you could describe in more detail what it was that you felt. Well, it was just
1: kind of an oh, there you are. Uh, Just a sort of a sense that I'd finally met something absolutely real and that it it had been the piece that had been. Uh, I'd been missing in my life for 20 years. I was 20 years old at the time. It's just like reality went clunk into a new level. And I was tremendously just, uh, you know, it wasn't like St. Paul on the road to Damascus or falling down or being slayed in the spirit. It was just an understanding that that whole level of reality was was true and intimate and perceivable.
0: Now, in encountering the wisdom jesus you make this statement that everything about the path of jesus and the practice of what he taught centers around kenosis or emptying oneself self-emptying what is that yeah. can you describe that
1: well the word itself comes uh, the the greek word kenosis is used in that famous hymn in the new testament that paul uses in philippians uh, and from the context clues it 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 means very clearly non-clinging the 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 text goes uh though his state was that of god yet he did not deem equality with god something he should cling to rather he emptied himself and there's the kenosis word it says therefore he emptied himself and assuming the state of a Slave was born in human likeness.
2: So the idea is
1: that it's, it's not airy-fairy. It doesn't mean any kind of, of great making oneself uh, existentially and metaphysically nothing. Uh, it doesn't talk about any altered state of consciousness. It's just simple, you know, what the Buddhists would call non-clinging.
0: Now, how is this made real in your life, this act of self-emptying?
1: It cuts across the board. It begins in my practice of centering prayer, where the the meditational form that we use in centering prayer is simply the letting go of thoughts as they come. And for me, self-emptying is, or non-clinging is really about letting go, loosening the grip, uh, loosening at the at the simplest level the grip that you have on a thought when you're meditating. So you you know the thought comes up, you let it go, and that's the method of centering prayer. So centering prayer is a meditational form of kenosis, and then when you move into life, it simply is very much uh, recognizing when you're stuck in a position of insisting or clinging or identifying uh, or you know putting your, your need or your will against a situation, so that what you're doing is Im- imposing on the situation and resisting, um, and simply a matter of letting go. And, and it doesn't even mean renouncing, like pushing away. It's much—it's much closer to what the folks in AA call having it, being willing to have it taken away. So it—it's going through life situationally with a non-possessive attitude.
0: Now, of course, this all sounds wonderful, and there are, are many instances where I can imagine just letting go, as you're describing. But I'm curious, how do you work with situations where it seems like there's something that kind of has a hold of you more so than you're even holding on to it? It just doesn't seem like it wants to let go despite our best efforts.
2: Well,
1: I don't know. It's It's been a while since I've found such a situation. You know, I've been at this for a very, very long time but, uh, uh, that that. You know, whether it's a obsession or a compulsion or an addiction, there's always, uh, you know, it takes two to touch. And if you are able to release, and, and, and once again, it doesn't mean renouncing. It means recognizing from what, what really amounts to a witnessing place, but a witnessing that's not carried in the mind, but really carried deeper in the body and the heart, uh, just seeing the thing go whirling by, and if there's no you there, uh, it can't really catch you.
0: Now, in this teaching on kenosis, you make a link, which I found extremely intriguing and filled me with ideas I'd never had before, which was an explanation of the Trinity within the Christian faith as an icon of self-emptying love. And I'd love if you could just slowly here, Cynthia, be gentle with us, explain this for our listeners.
1: Yeah, well, you have to deconstruct the Trinity first, because most people, if they've heard of it at all, they think about it as three points, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that it's used to explain in some way that nobody can really figure out how a man, Jesus, can also be a God, but uh, but not the same God as God and not the same God as the Spirit. So all the emphasis is on trying to define the persons. But what the tradition has always said is that you've got to think of the Trinity in movement. It talks about a flow of relationship, of love, and that these three persons are just the points in the direction that the love flows. So the the tradition has always said that the Father Self empties, and it's the same word, kenosis, into Son, and Son self empties into Spirit, and Self Spirit self empties into Father. So what you've got is kind of a great circle in which each one moves into the other by practicing this this letting go love. And so the the, the tradition says that these constant things, and I I always imagine kind of a paddle wheel on the Mississippi River. Steamer, where one bucket sort of flows into another bucket, flows into another bucket, and that turns the paddle wheel. And that creates the energy, and the energy is about love. So, what the Trinity really does, when you're looking at it not like a frozen kind of theological mantra, but as a as a mandala of how love moves, it talks about how this great interpenetrating and creating love flows between the forms. You know, God is, you know, what you'd call pure uh, pure formlessness, and Jesus is like total human, total form, and spirit is somewhere in the energy. So it talks about love by this constant self-giving motion that, you know, I practice in my meditation, um, connects and interpenetrates and interconnects the realms. So it's a wonderful, wonderful dynamic uh dynamic metaphor of form is emptiness, emptiness is form, caught in the act of creating form out of emptiness and emptiness out of form by applying the same self-giving love.
0: No, once again, because it helps my understanding, and because, to be honest with you, I've never really had a good, embodied, and rich appreciation of the Trinity, and it's something I'd really like. Can you describe how this movement, this dynamism, this paddle wheel of love works in you in some way that could make it more real for me?
1: Well, I think that it 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 could work. You you don't have to look any further than your own breathing. Uh you draw in a breath and you draw out a breath and uh where does it come from? And uh you know, we live all our lives slightly asymmetrical. Someone whacks us and we draw in a first breath, and then there's that final out breath at our death, and and another breath is not drawn in. And the great mystics and the Sufis and the teachers, and you know, and it doesn't even take it doesn't even take advanced mystical practice to just really see that you are constantly being breathed through, and that some life from some form and some place that is not of your biological making, is constantly in your being, connecting you on all levels. And we're very, very aware of energetic reality. Uh, we we know of connections, uh, non-localized action of the heart, that I know that I can, without too much effort, just open my heart and be present to my grandkids in Hong Kong. Um, so love is always carrying us Uh, and carrying me between various forms of solidity. You know, like my cat is here and I pat her. Uh, So that's love experienced in form. But where does my breath come from? And how does love from halfway across the planet uh, be so real? So, you know, we're always in our life drawing our subsistence, our sustenance, and giving back uh, the stuff of our life, our creativity, our will, our cre- our, our energy, our commitment, uh, along the whole gamut of embodiment uh, from very, very physical and tangible and mechanical to much more non-localized. Um, and we've done it, you know, we've done it since the get-go, but we are only in recent centuries being able to
0: talk about it uh,
1: in in terms that aren't just kind of, incomprehensibly mystical
0: and when you take something like the breathing process and you understand it in terms of the principle of the father the son and the holy ghost can you make that explicit for me well i would say that
1: the names i mean i i think that you have to just take the 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 eraser out And erase the names because they have connotations for you. But if you take father being love uh, in a formless state, uh, son being love in form, in you know here he is uh, in a body, and spirit being love in energetic form, then the the trinity is really talking about how all these loves uh, are moving as a single continuous flow through all the realms. So it's it's not like a classic kind of entry into form and exit of it, of kind of the perennial philosophy, but in every minute and in every nanosecond, um, all dimensions of reality are exchanging along a whole line from most manifest to most immanifest. And I think the Trinity just gives a wonderful personal way of picturing that.
0: mm mm-hmm you go into quite some depth about Jesus's life itself as a teaching, his life as what you call a sacrament, that we could read his life as a sacrament. What does that mean?
1: Well, at the simplest level, it means you walk the talk. Uh, And that, you know, we've talked about kenosis, uh, about the letting go, and he modeled it consistently. It was when I say it's really the light m- motif for the tie ride of his whole teaching in life, it is so. It's the theme of most every teaching, every parable, uh, and in the end, it became the, the the path he walked when he was faced with the choice of of uh, resistance or fleeing or or um, or yielding at one level, surrendering or self-emptying into a. Um, you know, into the power structure that had him cornered, uh, to to make the point at another level that there's something more powerful than the forces of this world. So his whole life is a is a living example of of kenosis in motion. And what the what the church has done, and it's been one of the better things it's done over two thousand years of of pondering and living with the, the the personhood of Jesus writ large, is it's it's kind of broken our approach to him up into times, seasons in his life which are experienced in deep way annually in seasons in the church year. And each one of these seasons contains a mystery that if you if you explore it and you integrate it in your own being, you discover a little bit more about the path that he was teaching, you discover where it lives in yourself, and you develop a deepening intimacy with him and with the reality that he's connected to at that level. So there's a season around his birth, um, which is called incarnation, where we really get to ponder what it means that, that... divine full divinity um it takes form and lives in human form so that divinity doesn't overpower or or you know eliminate form but can live within it like the bush that burns but is not consumed is a old testament Im- image for that and then you have the season where you look at uh the paschal mystery which is the heart of of the christian uh, year where we really try to understand how one willingly gives oneself up to death, and where one where one comes out on the other end, which is the resurrection part, and then in the season of the church year that we're living right now, we're experiencing the mystery. We're just coming up on uh, Ascension and Pentecost, which is getting used to how, you know, how the resurrection of the person really works and how one stays in continuous communion with something that doesn't have uh, physical embodiment anymore, at least gross physical embodiment. So that's what I mean, that if you give yourself to these slices of his life, uh, reinforced by the liturgical season when it's happening, there's much to learn you know, about the real metaphysics of Christianity, how how Christianity understands the relationship between the infinite and the finite to be working itself out.
0: Well, of course, what you're saying is there's so much in it, Cynthia, and I wonder if we can just break it down a little bit. You've worked so deeply with each phase of the major points of Jesus's life as a sacrament, and starting with the Incarnation, You talk about here this relationship between the infinite and the finite about how difficult incarnation can be, how hard it can be for the infinitude to actually take a finite form. And I'm wondering if you could say some more about that.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I love what I love what Bernadette Roberts said at one point. You know that wonderful Christian mystic. She said, <laughs> she said that crucifixion wasn't the problem. That's just divinity going back home. She says it was incarnation that was the bitch. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it's it's very interesting that that Christianity. I think incarnation is its strong suit, but it by and large does the right things for the wrong reasons. It knows there's something very, very important about this. Uh, this the word became flesh and dwelled among us, as it says in the prologue to the Gospel of John. But much of much of Christianity and in and in fact most of the world religions that come from about that period in time, the whole axial religion phases, all have in common this idea that there's something really, really flawed with this dimension of form you know whether it's maya or illusion or sin or exile you know pick your poison but most of the most of the religions will set this world up as a basically a bad scene that you've got to get out of as fast as possible you know whether it's a finishing school or pay off your karma and run or realize it's manifest illusoriness or what Uh, there's very few cultures except for ab Aboriginal cultures that that see anything of real beauty and dignity and seriousness here, but I think implicit in Christianity is the capacity to say yes, there is something not only beautiful and dignified, but so precious to be to be explored or learned or experienced or uh, or made manifest from God of of the heart of God what, God, what the heart of God really looks like, that can only be made manifest at this particular level of density and form. Because it is so hard, uh, Jesus comes to accompany us, um, and to not only to point the way, but in a very deep way to line the way, so that we don't collapse these conditions into a kind of... Uh, Unitive, shadowless, undifferentiated oneness, because there's something very, very deep and very, very precious about the quality of love that is manifest in the brokenness of this sphere.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, when you say that Jesus comes to accompany us, what do you mean by that?
2: Well, because
1: um, the, we might give up hope otherwise. That it it seems like that if you live genuinely in this in this life, you have your heart broken, uh, and that if you protect your heart, you don't live genuinely. And and I think that what he shows us with his deep conviction and his his lived experience that that love and true personhood uh, is greater than death. Um, he shows us that it's okay to live at that depth of vulnerability and passion and uh... authenticity and sincerity and have your heart broken because it isn't the end of the story and that you know as i experienced myself when i was you know when i had my accidental communion back there when i was twenty is that it's not just a, it's not just a demonstration he doesn't come to be a you know to be an einstein for us to applaud the quality of the love that takes up the gap between the outer edge of what we can do as human beings and what's there to meet to meet us isn't somehow a band that's covered by him that that he's there uh in a deep and steadfast way uh when with one's uh with one's heart broken or crushed. And yet one's spirit yearning, one reaches out, one meets an infinite tenderness that that in Christianity we, we identify as the, the living Christ.
0: I want to talk to you more about some of the different aspects of Jesus' life as a sacrament. But before I do, I just have a question because it seems that Each one of these different aspects of his life that we're talking about are interpreted so differently by different people. And personally, I like your interpretation. It's exciting to me. It opens up worlds of discovery, but yet the same life story has so many different interpretations. You're offering what works for you. I mean, how do you understand that?
1: Well, I think one of the most useful pieces of of uh, tools that that have been given us recently is Ken Wilber's wonderful uh, dif- differentiation between the line of a religion and the level of it. And that that any any given tradition can be expressed at any level from you know, from your mythical and your magical up through your mythic membership to your rational to your to your integral uh and on beyond into your non-dual. And Christianity has by and large settled, and I think it was a tragic mistake when it did it. It settled, and it it kind of reified itself at what you would call the mythic membership level, uh, sometimes heading down into magic. And it very, very early on in its Christian life uh, demonized what would be its non-dual edge, called it Gnosticism, and, and had done with it, and ridiculed it, and the the caricatures exist to this day. So the understandings of Christianity from a, from a much more non-dual and a much more unitive basis, which was the basis that Jesus himself was coming from, those have always been out there. But if you read, there's not a very auspicious history of the folks that gave these other when you look at Meister Eckhart or Hildegard von Bingham or the author of The Cloud of Unknowing who wrote anonymously so he didn't get uh <laughs> thrown on the on the you know, on the on the fires uh Christianity has been you know perversely insistent on kind of reifying its its fundamentalist edge as the only game in town, and that still goes on today and what so often happens since the you know that's the level that 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 has all the talk shows and um and and basically is the most uh influential in putting its message out a lot of people have no idea that there's any any gamut at all that there's any spectrum of interpretations you know they think that you know they may have heard of atonement theology jesus died for your sins and don't realize that that's only one of a whole spectrum of of positions, some which are much more uh luminous and so some of the work that I've been trying to do is to uh is to network and uh just kind of get the word out uh that there are that there are other positions and i'm I'm not making them up out of. Out of thin air i've got you know I do have my own sort of visionary side i don 't deny it, but that the stuff that i i'm coming up with is i 'm just putting new spins on stuff that's actually been in the tradition from the you know, from the from the first century from the third right through the mystical tradition, but people are just not aware it's there
0: mhm so you're digging it out and bringing a Fresh language, fresh imagery to it.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, that you know that one of the great the great books uh, called "The Roots of Christian Mysticism" by a uh, Eastern Orthodox writer Olivier Clément. He says his problem his his issue is not to justify Christianity, but to make it known in the first place. Because so many people are just dealing with caricatures that they, they don't understand and they don't have any access to the places where the great living transformational and mystical texts are actually there, hidden right in plain sight.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, in that spirit, making it known, we'll go back to Jesus' life itself as a teaching. What for you has been the most important lessons from Jesus' betrayal and his execution on the cross
1: well for me the the lesson has to do with the voluntary nature of it and that the 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 understanding that uh, that for most of us the survival instinct is so strong in us the and that finally defines the limit of our being that we can be magnanimous we can be friendly we can be very very spiritual until our own ass is on the line and then bang it's you know backtrack fast and what what is constantly reassuring to me is the is the realization that when you go through that and you don't take that as the bottom line and you don't uh, deter from love because of your scare for your own life that that continuance exists because love becomes the the stronger principle uh i saw that once again in my own teacher in his death and i've seen it in the in of course in all the great ones but it's the it's the reminder that 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 this canonic path is not a luxury you you apply during the time in your life when you're trying to be spiritual but is really is really the uh the attitude of of soul and body that takes you through the things that most terrify you.
0: Now you made a sort of interesting little aside there that I wanna follow up on when you said I saw that in my own teacher and his death. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well just a little that
1: he was um he knew there was nothing there was nothing, you know that was formally diagnosed but we both knew for the last 3 months of his life that he was at the he was coming down to an end and he he didn't resist um he continued to work teaching me um he he said that he wanted to as he put it share in the sufferings of Christ uh that in the in the voluntary giving back of what's been given to you um there's a luminosity that 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 certainly radiates back in yourself but is of benefit to the whole planet and it was just so gorgeous to him that there was no way that he could shrink from uh, the consummation of it in his own life.
0: Now, being you know nailed up to a cross doesn't sound very voluntary to me. What was the the voluntary part here that you're emphasizing?
1: Well, the voluntary part was not to get the hell out of town two days before uh, you know there would have been there would have been plenty of opportunity to uh to resist to coerce to to strike deals uh to to betray in any sort of ways but the the tradition has made clear that the whole part of it, which takes place classically in the scriptures in the garden of Gethsemane. Where he has a good long meditation, wrestle with the Father, and he says, "Father, if it be Thy will, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but Thine be done," is how the text reads. So the 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 tradition has always held that he agreed to this; that there was nothing taken that caught him unawares or took him unwillingly; that he understood in a deep way that this this wasn't. In a sense, what he'd come for, because without the ability and without the capacity to, to, uh, to give himself back in this way, that everything he would be teaching would be just fair-weather Christianity.
0: Now, I'm curious, once again, in your own life, have you ever found yourself at that type of crossroads where you felt that you had to overcome a survival Instinct that was maybe at play, and choose love something dramatic, something interesting.
1: Well, I'm, I remember it, then not in not in huge ways, but I think the I think the decision to leave Colorado and to go to a a very very um, uh, sketchy and high risk uh, you know seat of your pants teaching job in in British Columbia. Was, was that kind of an example where every part of me wanted to stay with my familiar ground and uh, the place where my teacher had been. and my uh, But there was a knowing that if I did that, that, you know, it was essentially, you know, insistence it was aborting my whole capacity to move deeper into love and that I had to let go and trust it. And I did, and my life changed.
0: That's interesting when you say move deeper into love, somehow going to British Columbia you knew included that tell me about that
1: well it i i knew that well moving deeper into love is simply the opposite of resisting so it's not like there was there was something out there that was calling me uh that i i could go running towards and say this is my life this is my passion i'm coming towards you it, it it had a very sort of gray and foggy quality like setting out on your boat when you can't across the harbor. So, but the the opposite of resistance is love.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so now moving into the next phase of Jesus's life as a sacrament, the resurrection. How is that meaningful to you in what language?
1: Well, not in the language that that the Church has settled on. It was about the 3rd century the Church decided that the resurrection meant the resurrection of the body that a fully enfleshed Jesus got up out of the grave and walked about. But the earlier Church really hedged its bets on that. What they believed in absolutely was the resurrection of the person. They knew absolutely that Jesus, that they'd given up for dead, was alive, vital, present, and intimately with them, and the they spoke of different forms in which he manifested his presence. For some, it was like in the in the story in Thomas, you know, a, a kind of pretty fully in flesh body. But he also sometimes he just had a visual appearance, like for Mary Magdalene, and sometimes there was no real appearance at all. There was just a certainty that he was there. Such as for the beloved disciple in the witnessing the empty tomb, so the and Saint Paul talks very very um with with no hesitation whatsoever about the resurrection body so what what resurrection means for me is that a person who has achieved you know uh a full individuality through conscious work in this life um with grace and with uh, a, a need to do so, is uh, is still present to this life. They don't disappear. They don't dematerialize. They don't go away or become moribund or in cold storage like some of our images have. But there is a a vibrant reality of life which continues beyond what looks like the end at this level, and that as we begin to live out of that vibrant reality, you know, my teacher said to me, you know, shortly before he died, he says, you have to find that which in you which already lives beyond death and start to live out of it now because that's the only way you can live a life on this earth. And he's so right. Uh, but the, the resurrection for me is about that, is the absolute triumph of the fact that personhood truly realized trumps Uh, death and Trump's physical dissolution and decay.
0: How do you experience Jesus's presence? I know it's a personal question. You seem to be rolling with my personal questions. I really appreciate that.
2: Well,
1: I mean, by the, you know, there's a warm, tender band of presence, uh, it has just sort of gradually grown over the years since uh well since before I was twenty because i i I at least recognized the person when i when I met him uh it's it's a presence uh and it's a presence among other presences there there are many that i uh that who are no longer in the body that i I know with distinct and significant presences. But his is the kind of the the master field of love that that holds these presences together while yet being personally present himself.
0: And in terms of connecting to what in you is deathless, what does that feel like to you?
1: To connecting to me with him?
0: No, I'll ask it again. And in terms of just you connecting, you know, you mentioned that your teacher said to you, we need to find mm-hmm. what in ourself is beyond yeah. death. What does that feel like in you? What is beyond death in you? Well, it's
1: it's it's not substantially different from what any number of teachers would talk about as present moment awareness. Uh is a sense of a you know, a kind of infinite depth dimension flowing through the the river of time, which connects, uh, which gives things a vibrancy. Um, all you can say, I, I can't say anything other than just a depth dimension to the now.
0: Now, as part of the series Encountering the Wisdom Jesus, you also talk about various practices. You talk about Centering Prayer and Lectio Divina and some other practices that people may be familiar with, and you offer something that I'd never heard before, which is something called the welcoming practice, and I wonder if you can share with us what that is.
1: Yeah, well, that was developed within the Contemplative Outreach Network um, as a companion piece to Centering Prayer. It was developed in the late 80s and early 90s by a woman named Mary Mazovsky, who was for many years a, a close associate of Thomas Beating and And she worked with it to actually create an active component so that you could take the letting go uh, attitude that you practice during the time of centering prayer meditation and practice it situationally when, you know, when you get what the Buddhists call unseated, either by an afflictive physical or emotional ailment or by the opposite, by, by your peacock feathers, by that sort of sleazy feeling of satisfaction when your false self-system has been appeased. So it's a way that kind of combines biofeedback techniques, you know, of being deeply present in your body with that letting-go attitude that welcomes the that welcomes the sensation of the moment and then lets go of our kind of false self-desires to make it other than it is.
0: So let's say I'm in a moment where I'm feeling my peacock feathers, for example, Coming out and starting their stuff, and I know it's a little fishy. What would I do?
1: Well, what you would do is you'd you'd start by becoming very aware very aware of of where in the body that's manifesting uh so you just go and be present, you bring your attention inside what's happening in you you know uh, and uh and without trying to change it or without trying to edit edit it, you just go live in it and then. You begin to say um, very quietly, uh, "Welcome peacock feathers, welcome peacock feathers," and the whole idea. A lot of pe- people think that's uh, that's crazy. That why would you you know why would you welcome something you're trying to get rid of that you see as a problem? But what this is really doing is that you're backing into witnessing consciousness when you do this, and what you're saying is that what lives with you as sensation in this moment. You as conscious witness can wrap yourself around. So that's what the welcoming does. It re- it restores the broken. Uh, the it, it restores the the wholeness of what was a broken field when your when your emotional reactivity got out of control. And then when it begins to calm down, you go back and forth between being aware of where you are, a sensation in your body, and just the light naming welcoming. Then you begin to say a uh, I let go. Uh, and you can either do I let go this peacock feather, but Mary Masowski liked to do a litany that I think is really neat once you know what it's all about. She always, whether it was a physical or an emotional thing, and whether it was pain or whether it was peacock feathers, she always said, I let go my desire for security and survival. I let go my desire for power and control. I let my go my desire... For affection and esteem, I let go my desire to change the situation. And that names uh, what Thomas Keating has called uh, the energy centers that run the false self si- system. So she said she liked to use every everything that came on her plate as a opportunity to send the false self a strong message, that these needs... That, that lead us around in our life like, uh, like a chain in our nose um, are, not, um, are not really uh, compatible with human freedom.
0: And as you mentioned, in our survival instincts that are biologically wired, we're actually letting go of some of our biological drives here. We're moving up, in a sense, yes? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Consciousness is a wonderful evolutionary principle.
0: Finally, moving into the end of our conversation, one of the other practices that you mention is chanting the psalms, singing the psalms. You've done quite a bit of work with singing the psalms, creating a book and a program, with Sounds True, on how to chant in the Christian contemplative yeah. tradition. Can you say a little bit about this, how you were introduced to singing the psalms?
1: Well, I got introduced to it by going to monasteries uh, and uh when I first went to my favorite monasteries at St. Benedict's and, uh, in Stomas and then out to Big Sur at New Caledonia, uh, it's classic monastic practice. And it's been in the tradition from time immemorial and, uh, and it's chanted. Uh, this is really, I, I believe, you know, to talk about it not theologically, but just descriptively, it's the Christian yoga. I mean, it's the place where we're working with breath and tone um, in full embodiment of devotion. And the Psalms have been the, the, the classic texts that have been used in the, in the Christian tradition from the very start to, to do this very important embodied dimension that really connects all in one place, the yearning, the prayer, um, and the embodiment.
0: Now, singing, of course, obviously has some level of embodiment, but to compare it to yoga, I mean, where you're moving in different postures, what gives it that real physicality?
1: Well, it's the yoga of the breath. And, uh, and you know, basically all the spiritual traditions work with breath. And particularly when you look at what was the classic work in with Gregorian chant, which for more than a thousand years was the way the psalmody was sung in the monastic career you're working with very very um extended out breaths, so you're you're working with essentially um intentional artificial breathing patterns that that have extended out breaths um and the amount of work that has to be done there's also a whole science of placing the sounds uh correctly in the chest and in the throat and in the in the vocal cavities so that your whole body becomes a vibrant resonating uh chamber for divine, you know, for the divine sacred words. So the asanas may not be outward, but they certainly are are good work for the subtle energy centers.
0: And do you do this just as part of your practice? You'll chant a psalm, sing a psalm by yourself?
1: Oh yeah, as soon as we finish our conversation, that's what I'll do next.
0: Would you be willing as part of our conversation to sing a brief piece of a song?
1: Well, let's see what's up to that tonight. Uh, you know, well, I'll maybe yeah, I'd be, I'd be okay to I be, I'd be okay to do that if you'd like.
0: I if would. You'd like me to? I would.
1: Uh and once again, you'll you'll be able to see that that being an operatic star is not a requirement, uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna chant you a, a little bit of the psalm actually for uh, for Friday evening uh, because it's a lovely psalm and it goes like this Psalm 138.
2: I thank you, Lord, with all my heart. You have heard the words of thy mouth. In the presence of the angels, I will bless you. I will adore before your holy temple. I thank you for your faithfulness and love, which excel all we ever knew of you. On the day I called, you answered. You increased the strength of my soul. All earth's kings shall thank you When they hear the words of your mouth They shall sing of the Lord's ways How great is the glory of the Lord The Lord is high, yet he looks on the lowly And the haughty he knows from afar Though I walk in the midst of affliction, you give me life and frustrate my foes. You stretch out your hand and save me. Your hand will do all things for me. Your love, O Lord, is eternal. Discard not the work of
0: your hands. So there you have it. What a beautiful psalm. And it reminds me of your point about discovering through Christianity the relationship of our finiteness with the infinite.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, of course, these images and and uh, and the Christians have have never, you know, they've they've they've. Stickered with, you know, it's either Jewish texts or the Christian texts, and, and it's still, you know, hotly contested. But uh, but the the sense that these were the 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 poetry, the songs of the soul that Jesus himself grew up singing, has just been so powerful that uh, that it has been the epicenter of the Christian monastic devotional practice.
0: And then Cynthia, just one final question: Our program's called Insights at the Edge, and I'm always curious what people's current edge is. Meaning, what might be for you something that you would consider a growing edge, or an edge of discovery for you that you're particularly interested in?
1: Well, I'm, um, you know, I'm I'm looking at the relationship between the you know we've had this since time immemorial the the demonizing of the ego the ego's bad we've got to get into unit of consciousness and the realization that the increasing realization that this is not just the development of the mind but it really requires a whole new structure of consciousness grounded in the heart uh and that there have been typologies coming out of the Sufi and early Christian tradition that talk about this that are being very strongly confirmed by modern uh neuroscience, so I'm really interested in in that taking a look at what is attention of the heart and and is there a inherently Western understanding of what enlightenment looks like through the structures of the heart, so that's an edge for me. Uh, and I'm also really interested in continuing to pursue um, the the gospel traditions of early France and the whole Magdalenic tradition there, which I think has great wisdom to bring back to our Christianity, which so early on got so hopelessly confused about human relationship uh, and human intimacy. So that's been an edge I'm working on, too.
0: Wonderful. I've been speaking with Reverend Cynthia Bourgeau. Very generous conversation. Thank you for giving so much of yourself to the conversation. She's the creator of a six-session Sounds True learning program called Encountering the Wisdom Jesus, Quickening the Kingdom of Heaven Within, as well as a CD series called Singing the Psalms, How to Chant in the Christian Contemplative Tradition. Cynthia, maybe just some final good words, a blessing, if you would be, once again, I ask so much, but I can't help myself, for our listeners who have tuned in today.
1: Yeah, well, may all you have tuned in be blessed. Uh, remember that the eye with which you seek God is the eye with which God is seeking you. So even before you start, you're found.
0: Cynthia Bourgeau, SoundsTrue.com, Many Voices, One Journey.